Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. We're concluding a series on whose church is this, and I want to start in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, the famous words of Jesus, this incredible promise in scripture that he gives the church. He says this, he starts out, I will put together my church. And in week one of this series, we learned that Jesus has the ownership rights, not only for one church to but every church. He has the ownership rights, but we have the custodial responsibilities for the church. So the church is Jesus' idea. Jesus owns the church. He's the architect and finisher of the church. And then he goes on to say, I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy, And week two, great teaching from Pastor Keith as he showed us what that energy of a community called the church looks like when we pray. When we pray, what happens? Chains fall off. Prison doors open. Captives are set free. And then in week three, he showed us the expansive nature of the church. Remember, he he discussed the power in we, the power that is in community, that our individual contributions expand, expand, when we do life in community with others. And this week, the fourth teach and final teach in the series, I thought, let's, let's read the whole promise out loud together, wherever you might be. Would you join in reading this Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 with me out loud together? I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. I love this promise. This promise has no expiration date on it. There are no conditions attached to this promise. Jesus has fulfilled this promise for over 2,000 years as the church has been through plagues and and, and persecution and everything. He has kept this promise. And in fact, throughout this pandemic that we find ourselves in, this promise has lent a lot of confidence to me. Now, I know There's not one person listening right now that hasn't experienced some measure of hardship as we go through this pandemic. It's it's awful. It's awful. And I want to acknowledge just for a moment, I know in particular it's been really hard on our children. It's been really hard on our seniors, the grampies and grannies that might be listening today. It's been particularly hard for those in our, not just our church community, but in our city and world, those who are struggling to manage a disability or a health condition. Uh, these are, this has been a very difficult season. And so just for a moment, listen up, fam. <laughs> Pastor Jessica and our church life team, I'm, I'm so thankful for them. Uh, they are working to support so many people. And in fact, uh, if you need help right now, Maybe you need someone to be praying with you or helping you. I'd invite you to either call or text our church number or to email us. And one of our team will get back to you. We have a great care team in this church. We want to lend as much support as we can to help everybody get through this moment. And if you're a senior watching, I want to invite you to join me 
Pastor Jessica is uh, organizing this great hymn sing on uh, February 15th. It'll be virtual. And in fact, this week, uh, we're mailing out hymnals. This is for Tony and Yulene Owls. I don't know if they're watching right now, but we're mailing out hymnals to all of our seniors to join us in that. And I'm going to lead you in a time of communion because we want to create a lot of community in the middle of a trying moment and a trying time. So this promise that Jesus gives in Matthew 16, verse 18, why has that lent me confidence? Well, I've, I've felt the hardship and the weight of this pandemic also. But the one thing I'm not worried about, I carry the weight of this church, but I'm not worried that Jesus won't see the church through this season. Because Jesus promised that nothing will stop the church from flourishing. The only thing that can stop a local church from thriving is when we lose focus of who the church is for. When we lose focus of it, that's the only vulnerable moment we have. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, this word church is the first recorded time that Jesus uses it. In the Greek, it means the word is ecclesia, and it means the assembly, assembled the called out ones. So I worked at kind of building a definition of church based off of what the New Testament teaches. Remember, the church was not a part of the original creation plan of God. We didn't need a church when God created this planet because everything worked in the proper rhythm and order that God intended his creation to operate in. But because we sinned, because there was sin that was introduced to creation, everything, the order was broken and God creates this redemptive community that's meant to restore and be a part of his presence here on earth, restoring his kingdom. So here's a definition. A church is a community of people. And Paul talks about, he actually describes each of us as living stones. So as Pastor Key said earlier in our series, the church isn't a facility or a building, even though we're thankful for a facility and a building. It's not the bricks and mortar of this. The church is you. It is living stones built together, a community of people who've been adopted. And this is what happens when we come to Jesus. We're adopted into his family. And the marks of a church family needs to be that it is a loving family. Loving enough to correct one another, loving enough to encourage one another, loving enough to sacrifice for one another, loving enough to be patient with one another, gentle with one another. So we're adopted into a loving family and then we are tasked with expanding this family of love. Immediately, when we come into knowing Jesus, we're adopted into this loving family and immediately it becomes about including and expanding and welcoming others into that. The American pastor, Greg Laurie, he, he kind of defines the mission of the church this way, and I liked it. He said, Jesus did not say that the whole world should go to the church. He said the church should go to the whole world. And that's our mandate, to go to the whole world. So the question we're going to answer today in this final teach is, who is the church for? Who is the church for? Who, does it, who is it for? And so we're going to go back in church history, and I want you to see what made the church so formidable, resilient, attractive, and even a little offensive. In the first three centuries of the early church, there was no religious group more persecuted than the church. Uh, they, they were persecuted and often killed uh, because they refused to honor the gods around them, all the other gods. They refused to worship uh, the, the emperor, the Roman emperor at that time. And so in turn, they were seen as being too exclusive. I mean, they were too narrow 
too narrow-minded, too exclusive, they were, but they were really a threat to the established social order of the early Roman Empire. Christians were seen as offensive, and because of that, they were excluded from the circles of influence and business, and again, as I mentioned, they're often persecuted and even killed. And it begs the question, why would anyone in those first three centuries even want to become a Christian? There's a great little book written by Dr. Larry Hurtado, who's a, a, a historian at the University of Edinburgh, and he attempts to answer that question. And he says, primarily, the reason why the early church kept growing despite the odds against it was that it was, as in his words, a contrasting community, a countercultural community that was both offensive and attractive at the same time. Now, that, that, that begs this question to be answered because I would never put those two things in the same sentence. How can we be both offensive and attractive at the same time? Well, the Christian church was offensive because it disrupted the established norms and systems of the Roman Empire at its time. If you were born in a certain city or you're from a city or a nation or tribe, then you would worship the God of that city, nation, or tribe. In other words, your religion was assigned to you at birth. You were born, whatever, insert uh, follower of this God or this religion. Christianity comes along and disrupted that pattern. That pattern helped build in nationalism, help build in all kinds of connectivity around local pride and one's own race. But Christianity disrupted all of it when it said you could choose your religion. Now, that was really good news for the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed. That was great news to them. They could find a better way, a new way, a way that would elevate them. But it was threatening to the established powers of that day. They, because they were depending on keeping people down so they could stay up. That's how systems work in this world. If we're up, we need people under us to keep us up, and it's harder to give it up. And so in the Roman Empire, that's how they found themselves at this time. Christianity was also disruptive in the way it identified, as people identified in the Christian faith, when you would come to Jesus, your primary and deepest identity would be being a follower of Jesus. And your secondary one would be your race and your gender and your nationality and all those other things that are often designations or markers of who we are. It didn't wash them away, but instead, your relationship to Christ demoted all of those other indicators to second place. All of them to second place. Now, this was threatening. Now, this is kind of unique, and if you want on your own time, look at Galatians chapter 3, because it's a great treatment of this. In the Roman world at this time, they were threatened and even shocked by the way Christians behaved towards each other. Because when they were in Christian community, whether you were male or female, whether you're a master or slave, whether you're highborn or lowborn, no matter what your rationality, you were equal. You were equal. The Roman system and established order depended on inequalities, not equality. And here comes Christianity, countercultural, this, this uh, 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 countercultural community that all of a sudden said, no, 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 no. When we're to get, we're one. We're all equal in this. Can you see why this was threatening and attractive? Why it was compelling to so many? And why it was so uh, offensive to others? Because depending where you sat, 
it looked either really attractive or it looked really dangerous. So I want to explore a little bit about who's the church for by showing you three things, three values you see in scripture that mark this first century church. And this is why it was so attractive. This is why it made room for others. It was primarily, number one, a community of difference. I don't know if you feel a little different today. If you do, you're in good community. It was a diverse community from the onset of the early church. It was a diverse community. It crossed ethnic background barriers. It united people. It bridged generational boundaries. It even bridged economic and socioeconomic barriers as well as uh, differences of opinions and beliefs. It was strong enough to keep together this great collection of people that maybe had no commonality outside of it. Throughout the book of Acts, if you read it, which is the, really the treatment in the historical account of the early church, there's incredible and remarkable unity amidst the diversity that is ex expressed there. In Acts chapter 13, the leadership structure of the church in Antioch, when you read where everyone was from, you realize, wow, what from, from the very beginning, even their leadership showed incredible diversity across all the, uh, uh, the then-known world. So you have people from different races and backgrounds, and they're equal, and they're all included, and they're all considered brothers and sisters. Now, this tore at the fabric of nationalism and protectionism. You know, there, there can be a healthy pride in where you're from, right? Uh, I just uh, noticed that the men's uh, soccer team in, here in Canada is two wins away from qualifying for the World Cup. And if you're a Canadian, you know that that's a big deal because Canada never does anything good when it comes to soccer or football, depending where you're from. Uh, and you can have a sort of pride. You're in the Olympics. You see Usain Bolt cross uh, with a gold medal, and you could be from a, a Jamaican background. You can have a great pride in that. But, and so there can, can be some healthy levels of pride in where you're from. Uh, but you need to be careful because nationalism and protectionism uh, can be elevated to the place of where all of a sudden you're nationalistic and your faith become intertwined. And this is where it always becomes dangerous in scripture, but also dangerous in society. These are secondary markers in our lives, not primary markers in our lives. And all, it was also a place in the early church where women and men shared in leadership. There was an equality there, young and old, master and slave. They were all equals in this community. It was interesting. It could house saints and sinners. It was that strong. It could house both both people who thought they were saints, but they were really sinners, and both people who thought they were sinners, but, they, but Jesus had redeemed them and they'd become saints. It was strong enough to support all of this diversity. It was a community of difference. So the church was not focused on what made them different from each other. They were focused on what united them. Jesus was high and lifted up, high and lifted up. And then your differences don't disappear but all of a sudden, that primary focus creates love for one another in community. Just before the pandemic, I, I went to a concert with a friend of mine. And this picture came up in my timeline from the concert. It was incredible. Standing room only concert. There were hundreds and hundreds of people there. I had very little in common. I may have been the oldest guy in the room. I don't know. I could have been the oldest guy in the room. 
But it was funny. We were all from different cultures, backgrounds, and socioeconomic backgrounds, and educational levels, and all of that. But we had this one thing in common. We were all looking in the same direction towards the stage because we all loved this band's music, and we all we, we knew the words to the music, and they were in the room with us. And this is a picture of how the church works best. On the platform is not our musicians or a pastor, but can you imagine if we're all looking at Jesus together? If we are all looking, and in this room it was funny, we, we, we show so much love for each other and respect for each other, and we didn't even know each other. And we're so different. Why? Because we're overwhelmed with love for what was going on in this moment. So all of a sudden, Jesus is in every gathering and our eyes are focused on him. And all of a sudden, it gives us more robust love for each other. See, when we get our eyes off of our first love, Jesus, when we get distracted, it amplifies our differences. It amplifies them. But when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, our first love, what it does, it doesn't wash away our differences, but it amplifies what unifies us. And all of a sudden, we can handle the differences of cultures and the differences of, of genders and backgrounds and everything else that we bring to the table. Listen, there's no perfect people in this church. So when we come, we bring in all kinds of stuff. We bring a lot of good stuff and a lot of talented stuff and resources and energy and strength. We also bring our baggage and we bring our brokenness and we bring some ideologies that are shaped by the world a little bit. And this is why Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 is so critical for anyone who's a follower of Jesus because all of us are in the process of having our thinking renewed, changed, and line up according to what God would have us do. So we have a choice when it comes to our first love. And here's what I want you to remember about this community. We have a lot more in common than you might really realize at first on the surface. It may not be how we look. It may not even be some of our personal beliefs or side preferences or anything else. But here's what we have in common. Everyone of us needs a savior. Every one of us have, is sinners. Every one of us needs forgiveness. Every one of us bleeds. Every one of us needs love. So th this first century church was compelling because it was a community of difference where anyone could fit and everyone could stick. It was also a community of grace. The thing that marked this first century church that was remarkable to anyone around it was their emphasis on forgiveness and reconciliation. In fact, in those first three centuries, under intense persecution, where so many Christians were losing their lives, where they were excluded, and there were lies made up about them, and they were persecuted, and they had to hide, and so many things were done, Christians taught forgiveness, not retaliation. The culture in those first couple of centuries, in the Middle Eastern and in the then-known world, was a shame and honor-based culture, and some of you may come from shame and honor-based cultures yourself. Vengeance was a natural next step when someone harmed you. But in that culture, how counterculture is this? Christians didn't act that way. Christians didn't ridicule. They didn't taunt their opponents, let alone repay them with violence. This is what makes the season we're in right now challenging, challenging. Uh, there's so many voices on Christian TV Christian YouTube, Christian social media, and they sound just like every other voice in the world today. Uh, taunting, retaliatory verbiage, inflammatory language, 
and maybe even seems justifiable too. It would have been justifiable for those first century Christians to go on the offense because they were wrongfully marginalized, oppressed, and persecuted. But they didn't. They taught forgiveness in the middle of this. See, I'm watching Christians even use the Bible not to build up, but to tear down. I don't think if the first century Christians came into our world right now, I don't think they would recognize this angry brand of Christianity. I don't think they would identify it as being that. It was so counter how they chose to live their lives in the middle of this. But sometimes we cloak. We cloak a lot of our our incivility in conspiracy theories and self-proclaimed self-righteousness. Friends, don't get caught up in this. One church deal, let's not get caught up in this. You know, I, I think there are people more concerned about their rights and being right than living right. Let's make living right our emphasis here at One Church Deal. That's what made the first century church so compelling. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Remember, when Jesus reserved his harshest words for the religious people, not the world around him. I think that theologian Henry Nouwen put it best when he said this, for Jesus, there are no countries to be conquered, no ideologies to be imposed, no people to be dominated. There are only children, women, and men to be loved. Oh, friends, let's be a community of grace, a community of difference, a community of grace, and then finally, a community of care. The first century church was famous for the hospitality of the poor and the suffering. See, it was normal in that ancient culture that you would take care of your family members. If a family member was poor or suffering, you had an obligation to, to, and even, you know, out of love, hopefully, you would serve into your family. The Christians were different though. They just didn't take care of their own. They took care of everyone's own. I think it was Pastor Keith that mentioned it in the last couple of weeks that during the plagues, uh, the Christians didn't uh, uh, flee the cities. They stayed in the cities, often costing their own lives, serving the sick and the poor in the middle of that. An example of it, one of my favorite, is Emperor Emperor Julian at the time, the Roman emperor at the time. He was gravely concerned with the spread of Christianity because by the time he ascended to the throne, Christianity had begun to become a dominant expression in his empire. He was so concerned, he began to channel major funds towards pagan temples, trying to elevate them in order to counteract the Christian movement that was happening. Remember, it was a threat to the social order of the Roman Empire, and it was threatened to dismantle all the powers that be in the systemic powers that allowed some people to be on top and some on the bottom. So it was so threatening, he, he began to fund all these pagan temples to try to move people towards it. In a letter he writes to a friend of his, trying to help, uh, trying to explain the spread of Christianity, he said this of them. He said, these impious Galileans, and this would have been a derogatory term he would have used, don't take care of their own poor only, but they take care of our poor as well. Christians took care of everybody's poor. It was at the heart of what they did. There's, There's a there's a pastor theologian named Jonathan Edwards. He, I think he died in 1758. He was from the U.S. And he wrote, he's a prolific writer and theologian. He, he wrote this, and I think this is really powerful. He said, where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms? 
and in a more preemptory, urgent manner than the command of giving to the poor? He asks this question. Now, if you're like me, I went to the dictionary to look up this word immediately because I don't think I've ever used this word. Preemptory. And what it means is that there is no other place. It means beyond doubt, refusal, or incontrovertible. And what Jonathan Edwards is saying is, listen, there are many commands in Scripture, but there is one, there's none more clear, stronger than the command to care for the poor. And that's a command he gives to every Christian. It's not a, it's not a division of the church that does benevolence. It's not for, it's every one of us is commanded to care for those who are in need. There's nothing clearer in the scripture for us. This is why the love army is so important. This is not just Christian witness, friend. This is Christian formation for you and for me. This is not just about helping others. This is actually saving us. It's as we mobilize. I'm so proud of partnering with organizations that are taking care of the poor in our city and we get to use whatever resources we have to come alongside of that. I'm so proud of what you as a community are doing, but make no mistake of it. This is part of honoring the command that God gives in scripture. So friends, the question is this. How do we become this type of community? I think there's only one way. There's only one way that we can truly become a community of difference where anybody could stick. There's only one way that you and I, we could be actually a church, a community of grace. And there's only one way that we'll become a community of care. And it's by laying hold of the essential truth and building our life around it that God loves you. Uh, there's a great author, his name's Brennan Manning, and he died in 2013. Uh, Shelley and I've read many of his books. He, he speaks about grace and love in a way that it's hard because if you come from a background where you've earned everything you've gotten, grace is a really difficult concept for us to get our heads around because grace is the determination that you and I are receiving something we don't bear it, we didn't work for, we could never do enough for. And it puts us very much in the, in the position of, of holding our hand out to receive. Pride wants us to put our hands in our pockets because I, I don't need. Grace is an acknowledgement that we all need. Well, uh, Brennan Manning struggled with alcoholism. He had a terrible background. And he had discovered the love of Jesus. It, it changed his life. And I wanted to show you a little clip of him speaking. This is many years ago. I think it's 2007 or something, obviously before he died. And he speaks about a truth that I think is paramount for us to be this type of community. Give it a listen. In the 48 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus in a little chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania, and then literally the thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence and solitude over those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is gonna ask each of us one question and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? The real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I tried to shape my life as a response to it. 
but many of us who are so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are going to have to reply, <clears throat> well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image, and he wants us to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship. And my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. Did you believe that I loved you just as you are? This is not just some warm, fuzzy concept, friends. This determines how we shape our lives. It determines the type of community that you and I will be. I, I love his words. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are, not as you should be, because you'll never be as you should be, not in this life. Friends, do you believe he loves you? Do you believe that he loves the sound of your voice? Do you believe that he desires you just as you are? I want to uh, take a moment and pray with you. I'd love to pray for those who maybe want to follow Jesus for the first time. You want to experience this love that Jesus has for you, that Jesus demonstrated by dying for your sins, dying and taking your place, paying the penalty for you for all that we've done in this world that breaks this world or breaks us so that you and I could find new life and we could be restored back to the creator. I'd like to pray with you. And I want to pray though for Christians too. For those of us who are allowing things to block the love of God towards us, 
Some of it is blocked because of maybe the way we received love from our parents. Maybe there was conditions attached to it, or maybe we've experienced a lot of woundedness and hurt and love. And so, so we find ourselves trying really hard and falling short or trying really hard and becoming more pharisaical as we do because all of a sudden we become a little more self-righteous. The Christian walk is not about trying harder. It's about trusting deeper and trusting in the person of Jesus. Not what you've done, what he's done. So would you come and join me in a moment of prayer? If you would like to follow Jesus, join me in this prayer. Jesus, thank you for coming to look for me. When I was astray, you left the 99 to come and find me. Jesus, would you forgive me? Forgive me of the things I've done that have harmed others, harmed my life. The, the things that I've done that have hurt your, your heart, God, and have marred the image of God in my life. And would you fill me with your spirit? Fill me with that loving spirit and help me to see and embrace that I am loved just as I am. But thank you, Jesus. You never leave me as I am. But instead, God, you are fashioning me and making me into a person that will look more and more like you. I surrender my life, everything that there is, to you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I'd invite you to pray along with me. Because if you're like me, I get so sucked into the things going on in this world and the narratives. And I can, I can begin to live and look and smell a lot like everything around me not the countercultural community of grace, not the countercultural community of difference or care. So maybe we'd love to recalibrate or reset. So followers of Jesus, you know, I invite you to just hold your hands out in front of you if you would as a way of offering up everything we have. Jesus, we come to you today, not out of some sense of pride, but of a sense of desperation. Without you, Jesus, We've got nothing. So we give you everything again. God, would you renew our thinking, our behaviors, our thoughts, our words, that we would look like, act like, and smell like the Jesus we proclaim to love. God, recalibrate our hearts so that your kingdom come, your will would be done on earth, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, as it is in heaven. We give you free reign in our life. Thank you for loving us just as we are. And thank you for never leaving us as we are. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Love you, church. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.